0: I was about to say before that having your kid, being a kid is having your mind blown every day by like, the existence of a lamp. But um, coming here for me is having my mind blown every year. Um, Yeah, so, but a lot of this stuff is online. So even if you don't live in Malmö, you can have access to it. And one of the activities actually is the collaborative foresight cycles uh, in which subject experts and community members come together to reflect on possible directions of of some change that is happening. Uh, And they think together uh, about, or imagine together about possible futures, probable futures, and preferable futures about some theme. And the latest, uh, cycle is about the futures of wise cities and just outside in the installation you can pick up a copy of this really interesting book uh, about that topic and also look at some of the tools they are working with there. And I'm extra pleased to mention about this book that it includes a chapter by Caroline Steele who you, some of you heard last year on this stage talking about wise cities through the lens of food. And that sort of meeting between like, big infrastructural, uh, infrastructural units, like cities, um, and the most personal and cultural and biological, like a meal or a spoonful of something, uh, is to me a great example of what I feel we've been trying to grapple with here uh, for the last two days. Uh, we've been trying to move away. Even though it's hard from oppositional binaries uh, towards these thinking models of, of balance and non binarity and complementarity and life cycleness, life cycle thinking. Um, and yes, of course, we can remember the conceptual binaries are also thinking tools. They help us organize uh, thoughts and they can help us communicate, uh, but they are also at the same time cultural constructs, which mean that we are allowed to not just like, accept or reject a binary, which in itself is another binary, I realize, uh, but we can remix the meanings of, of those terms and evolve them and redefine them. And we can think about, about the categories together. Uh, so for instance, uh, someone who is who's here, I think in the room, turned to me today, uh, apropos what I was talking about yesterday morning, where I sort of, I guess, pitted being a professional against being human. Um, and we started talking about all the aspects of being professionals and being professional that we really value. And she said, Okay, so what you mean is kind of like you want to redefine professional to not mean technocrat, but to be more like craftsmanship. And I'm like, yes, actually, yes, yes for me, like personally, that's a big part of it for, for what I need that to be, because I want to absolutely and fully embrace always striving to do a really good job. Like that is an important value, working hard and like doing best, doing, doing good to the best of my ability. And at the same time, And that's where I think I need a change in that term, is I want to be able to do that and not lie, because truthfulness is important, and and especially I want to back away from two lies. One is the lie that the best of my ability is the same every day, because it's not. Sometimes, like on some days, it costs me more to perform on the level that I am able to and I think that's true for all humans. And some days I can't do it at all, and I think that's also true for all humans. But in professionalness, we have this like pretense that we're always as capable at all moments. And that is just like biologically not true. Sometimes, for instance, we are tired. Uh, and the other lie that I want to back away from is this idea that if I am this skilled and professional, and I've heard so many variants of this, Uh, in different talks uh, here in the last two days that I am so skilled and professional and I don't want to pretend anymore that the way I got those skills and the way I got to that level of professionalism was some kind of expectable straight path because my life was different from that. And I think almost everybody's life is different from like the story that you have in that like blank professional, you know like image of of yourself. And I think that if you are allowed to not lie about how the way you got there was different, then you can say that all of those experiences have like an enormous value that can be used in your work. Um, I I have made a little handwritten note uh, here because just uh, in the previous session uh, I heard Holly talk about how being human at work, the idea isn't, they said to bring like all your mess or all your drama <laughs> to to the office all the time. Although let's be real, that also happens. And like that's one of the things that's gonna happen if we're allowed to be human. Sometimes we will be that person. But it's about doing um, this interior work that allows us to show up fully in our work and, and for our our work. And I think it'll just make us better. Ovetta talked about this today, Sasha talked about this today, many others have also talked about this. Like what happens when the data sets leave out big chunks of humani- of our humanity, like either sections of groups of people or, or aspects of our lives, uh, our dialects, our life paths, our bodies, our experiences. And I can't help but think that if every workplace with, like let's say, engineers, invited those engineers to sort of celebrate their diversity and their different experiences as assets, in, and their humanity as assets instead of as problems, maybe it would be easier for them to, re- to remember and to start to question, like, well, what aspects of my life are in the data or not in the data? And, and what aspects of humanity are we not thinking about? And who is not in the conversation, who is not in the room? Like extrapolation becomes easier if we don't have to lie to ourselves even about our own humanity. And sometimes it becomes absurd because I'm, I'm just going to go out and a limb and assume that everybody who works at a major tech company is physically mortal although I think some of these billionaires aren't 100% sure, like they'd like to think it different, but I think in the end all of us are going to die. And Carl uh, talked today in one of the breakout sessions about how none of these companies have a plan for the very culturally important and to them financially expensive question of what do they do when users die? Like what do you do with the data? And the fact that nobody has remembered that they are physically mortal seems to me like this is a perfect example of that not being human at work has uh, consequences. Um, Yeah, so prioritizing the leadership of the most impacted is not about rejecting expertise. I think that was put very well on this stage. Uh, It's about taking seriously the knowledge that is distributed across the human systems. And I've also been fascinated in these last two, two days to hear again and again like this, this complexity, th- like the rejection of the binary. Like on one hand, yes, like an, an absolute critique and a challenge to a technocentric narrative of the world. But then to to complement that with a wider understanding of what uh, technologies are, uh, technologies as part of social systems, uh, about considering life as a technology. Um, Michael talked about uh, about how the relationship between uh, Uh, let's see, I have a a between magic magic and technology, that it suggests that coding is a kind of spell weaving. Uh, I don't think he used that word, but I imagined it and I felt it was poetic. Uh, And I think that's true, like, yes, absolutely, coding is magic. And then it's also, of course, equally true that rituals are a kind of social magic of transformation. We we use rituals uh, in all cultures to change names and the legal status of humans and and their relationships and to process laws and we ritual, use rituals in our own life to give ourselves a little bit of extra energy or joy or reflection like that's ma- Magic like that is <laughs> that's pretty much the definition of what magic is and we have agreed that it works and it works So maybe we do need to work also with sort of the social technologies of magic. I feel so dorky saying this right now, but I I genuinely believe it to be true. Um, I imagined that you were judging me. I can't actually see your faces, so I am just projecting my own uncertainties on you. Let's say that you all actually embrace this idea. Of course social technologies, like rituals, are also technologies. And we all agree, right? Yeah, yeah? Okay, good. So if we are talking about dramatically changing global systems and local systems, which I think we like know at this point that we have to, it makes sense to me that we approach that work in the spirit of all of these wise speakers that we've heard um, in these two days. Rejecting simple solutions. That we need to uh, say that all built systems, be they technological or social or... Uh, infrastructural or digital all built systems uh, are human systems and they cannot succeed in what they're trying to do without understanding and involving and designing for the human their human context and by the way when their goals are exploitative they succeed because they understand how to exploit humans like successful systems are good at humans but often systems aren't intending to be dangerous and awful, and we can fix that by like doing the work around the human sides of those systems design. Uh, and I think that that human side of the systems design will probably include working or thinking with um, culture and the body uh, and ritual, for instance. And also we have to remember that human systems are ecological systems by virtue of our existence of, of this planet. This can no longer be denied. This is a scientific fact that I think is completely uncontroversial. It can't be denied as a parameter for financial sustainability anymore. And finally, I think it's necessary in our like idea and our work with what it means to be a professional to, when we think about our work, when you think right now about what you do, I think a lot of that is going to be like, in the air or in a cloud or, you know, in your head. But we have to think about the many ways in which our daily work exists materially. It exists in places, it exists in bodies, it exists in ecosystems, it exists in relationships of power and it exists in relationships of love. So in the whole this morning, uh, Christopher gave a very good critique about the binary way in which I have been placing uh, hope against fear from this stage. Good point. He said uh, they're not opposed to each other, hope, and fear they are cousins. Uh, the opposite of fear is abundance, he said, and it all comes down to agency, I'm summarizing. I actually couldn't agree more. Like, yes, I fully think that, uh, to me personally, fear is a state of paralysis. Fear is when I am um, prohibited from seeing that I have space to act. But f- fear can also be a reminder of what the stakes are. Like, fear means that I care, uh, or that i love or that at the very least i am invested in living like truly living um, and then fear can remind us that there's work to be done whereas hope to me to me is very much about seeing potential like seeing paths seeing that if we do good work locally uh, towards good transformations even if we don't exactly see how that connects you know, to the whole process, because maybe individually we're not qualified to personally like solve, for instance, the climate transition. Um, We can still believe somehow that what we're doing will scale because others are also working. But then there's naive hope, which is like, it'll be fine. It'll work itself out. There's some kind of it that will do the work. And I don't think that there's an it that will do the work. that could be a paralyzing way of thinking of hope, so it, again, we, meet, we need both. So I'm running out of a minute of a minute. So let me now rephrase my questions to you super fast. Do you feel, after this day of tools and tactics, that there are abundant ways for you personally, to act on what you want for the future? Do you have abundant ways of moving moving forward? I don't expect everybody to say yes, but I hope somebody feels that they have abundant ways to move forward towards a good future? Yeah. Oh, that's great. A lot of people carefully feel, like a lot of hands did this. Yes. So like semi-abundant, like that's quite fairly lot. Okay, do you feel today that you have at least one thing that you can do or change or create to move towards to the future you wish for? Yeah. Holly said something that like really shook me. Uh, in that presentation before, are you willing to become who your heart is calling you to be? I'm not forcing you to answer that in public, by the way. I don't know my answer. That answer gives, like, that question gives me fear and hope, you know? Are you willing to become who your heart is calling you to be? Ooh, goosebumps. I think possibly magic is in those words. Uh, yeah. You all have like at least one thing that you can do. And I learned this morning from Sasha that the the machine cannot do the thing. I'm happy to tell you that you can do the thing. That's where we're going to end. I'm going to give you one minute of housekeeping or less. You may now feel that you're not at all done and you're not ready to go home, have no fear, you can go to the bar. It is again at Biz, if you want to wind down with fellow conference goers. If you want to continue hanging out in beautiful Malmo, there's still programming of course this week. I especially want to mention that on Friday there's a seminar about participatory urban planning uh, that is relevant to the book and and to everything we've talked about here and that still has spaces. Enjoy your remaining time with each other. Remember that you can share videos uh, of your favorite talks with friends and colleagues to be able to discuss them with them or to review them later for yourself. Thank you for being generous and kind and professional and human. See you next year.